The subject of the talk tonight is dependent origination. And this topic is one of the probably most complex teachings of the Buddha. And the Buddha spoke to this complexity in a conversation with Ananda. And I think uh, Bonnie referred to this the other night. Ananda was talking about his joy, his love of the Dharma, and in particular of the the uh, joy and the beauty of dependent origination. And he said, it is wonderful, it is marvelous how po- profound this dependent origination is, how profound it appears. And yet it appears to me as clear as clear. And the Buddha responded, do not say that, Ananda. Do not say that. This dependent origination is profound and appears profound. It is through not understanding, not penetrating this doctrine, that this generation has come to be like a tangled ball of string, covered as with a blight, tangled with like coarse grass, unable to pass beyond states of woe. So clearly, the Buddha both acknowledged its profundity, its complexity, and its importance to us. He states that by, it's by not understanding this that we are stuck. Several of you in the uh, meetings have talked about feeling all tangled up, tangled like a ball of string. Just as he mentioned to Ananda, it is through not understanding this that we are tangled. I understand the teaching of dependent origination to be a detailed exposition of the second noble truth, the cause of suffering. It goes into depth about what the process is by which suffering is created in our minds. And so it's a very clear look at this. I understand dependent origination to be a teaching as opposed to a practice. We don't practice dependent origination, but it is very helpful for us, it's very practical for us to understand how this process works in our minds how suffering is created in our minds. It's eminently practical for us to understand that because it is through understanding that that our mind begins to understand how to let go of the causes of suffering. This chain of dependent origination is described as a set of causal links of what causes suffering to come into being. And through understanding the causes, it's not lockstep, it's not, um, it's, it's, it's causal rather than, um, I can't think of the right word, uh, automatic. There is, the, there is a way in which when the causes are reversed, the whole process of suffering just falls apart. So I 
hope to make this talk clear and yet practical. It is uh, a teaching that for me has been um, very supportive in understanding my moment-to-moment experience, understanding how suffering is created. And so I hope to share with you some of the ways that this has supported me in my understanding and in my exploration of experience. As the Buddha pointed to, it is through not understanding this that we stay caught in suffering. And so in that very statement, to some extent the Buddha is equating an understanding of dependent origination with full liberation. So we're probably not going to get there tonight. But I find the teachings work in a really iterative way. So we hear about it, we massage it, we reflect on it, we may begin to be able to explore it in our direct experience, and then we hear about it again so that we deepen progressively in our understanding. So some motivation, perhaps, for understanding this. The key, the key motivation for me is that it describes so clearly how suffering comes to be, and that it describes it as a causal process. So we begin to understand, through understanding this teaching of dependent origination, dependent origination could be kind of most succinctly summarized as the statement, when this is, that is. When this arises, that arises. And when this ceases, that ceases. So it is... um, seeing how experience conditions experience. So we begin to understand our suffering as conditioned, not as either random or as foreordained, as preordained. That it it is a conditioned arising. This is helpful for us to notice and recognize that our suffering is conditioned. We begin to see our suffering as the unfolding of an impersonal set of conditionality rather than either something that somebody else is doing to me or something that I have absolute control over. So we begin to see it as suffering being caused by this unfolding chain. The links in this chain, as we'll go over in a few minutes, are all related to processes in the mind and body. And so that's the other piece that I think is really helpful in terms of this as a teaching. It points to the arising of suffering being related to processes in our own minds. The other piece of that set of processes arising in our own mind is that largely the impulsion through this chain of conditions relates to choice, relates to intention in our mind. And so 
Essentially, we could say that when we are not mindful, when we're not present, when wisdom is not operating with mindfulness, our habits, our conditioning is making our choices for us. And those choices tend to lead us down the garden path of suffering. When we can make the choice, when the choice can be made, perhaps I should say, when, the, when mindfulness arises, when wisdom arises, as you see it happening, when that arises, the choice can be made to bring mindfulness and wisdom to our experience, which tends to lead us towards freedom, towards happiness, away from this chain, out of this chain. So the other piece around this chain is that it it begins to point for us to ways to redirect, to let go. So the 12 links, 12 links in this chain, and we will talk about all of them. So um, I'll just name them right now. Just, I'll just put them out there, and then I'll go, go back through them. So the chain begins, classically begins, with ignorance. With ignorance as condition, mental formations come to be. With mental formations as condition, consciousness comes to be. With consciousness as condition, mentality, materiality, or mental and physical processes come to be. With mental and physical processes as condition, the six sense spaces come to be. With six sense spaces as condition, contact. With contact as condition, feeling. With feeling as condition, craving. With craving as condition, clinging. With clinging as condition, becoming. With becoming as condition, birth. With birth as condition, old age and death, or as the Buddha puts it, the entire mass of suffering comes to be. So one piece to um, point to around this, um, start, it starts with ignorance and then moves on to suffering in those 12 links. And yet it is understood in some ways that suffering then, that last link of the chain being the mass of suffering, the arising of suffering, suffering tends to feed back into ignorance. And thus the cycle perpetuates itself. So it is not simply a chain, a one-way chain. It is a cycle, a cycle of dependent origination. So classical teachings from the um, commentaries break down this cycle into three stages, three um, parts, essentially. Talking about a former life, the present life, and a future life. And they break these... um, put specific links into these various lives. We're basically saying that the ignorance and mental formations from our previous life will feed forward into this life and influence our experience in this life. The links of the chain uh, in this life are understood or are laid out from 
consciousness, mentality, materiality, six sense spaces, contact, feeling, clinging, craving, craving, clinging, becoming. Those are the, uh, are talked about in terms of the suffering in this life, and and that's a a place where we can really see this process at work. So the understanding is that the ignorance, mental formations from a previous life have the capacity, have the property, or have the uh, the forward motion essentially to um, land and um, say re-arise the momentum of those we can re-arise in this life and influence how we are here and now. And then likewise, how we are in this life is said to feed forward into a next life. Birth, aging, and death in the next life. So the literal phrasing of the link supports this understanding of these as... um, how these fall into different lives. In particular, the, the phrasing around birth, you know, that, that this is understood, the word birth is understood to mean the literal birth of a being. <clears throat> and so that seems fairly clear that it's talking about moving from uh, one life into another. And there is also an understanding in the Pali Canon that this chain of dependent origination also refers to the moment-to-moment arising of suffering. How in the present moment, ignorance feeds in to our consciousness and conditions our consciousness and impels us forward in this cycle. It seems pretty clear when we actually look into our experience that it's not just I mean, whether or not you have uh, a sense of previous lives, um, it seems pretty clear that ignorance in this life is influencing us in this life. And so we can explore the entirety of this chain here and now, which is how I plan to explore it this evening. This is my own personal, um, uh, the, the way I resonate most with this teaching um, I have no personal um, ex- experience or sense of former lives, so I can't connect that to my direct experience. And yet I think one of the powers of that teaching about um, former life influencing this life is that we see that um, ignorance... Um, can kind of go underground and operate uh, in s- funny ways. You know, that you may you may um, have some kind of intention that was formed in a long time, a long time ago, and suddenly that intention kind of bears fruit in this moment. And you know, you might see this as an arising of a thought from long ago. You know. Pr- It arises. An old habit or an old pattern produces uh, a thought here and now. And then there's reactivity here and now. So the... um, I think part of what this points to is how... And and Tanisaro Bhikkhu sometimes talks about these 
the, the way this conditioning works. And we also often think of conditioning as, you know, one moment to the next, to the next, to the next. And he's, he, he in, in indicates that the conditioning can also kind of come in um, over time. So in this talk, I am going to mostly look at it from the perspective of this life. And from the perspective of this life, the term birth would refer to the arising of a sense of self, taking birth into an identity. We feel this. We feel this birth into, I am the one who has to be right. I am the one who owns this or controls this. There's a a palpable sense of something arising into being, a sense of being born into an identity. And the term around aging and death refers to the um, fading and passing away of all experience, essentially. That everything that arises falls apart. So I'd like to explore this, the chain, in some depth here with you. And... um, I'm going to start in a kind of unconventional way. As I said, the chain begins with ignorance, but I'm going to start kind of in the middle of the chain. I'm going to start right where we are with our senses. So the, one of the middle links of the chain is our sense bases. So let's start there. That's a pretty easy place to connect with our experience is through our sense bases. We have these sense bases. We have eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, the skin, and our mind. Based on our um, sense bases and because consciousness is present, we experience contact. The consciousness has to be present for us to experience contact, of course. If consciousness is not present, if we're lying there um, knocked out in a surgery, we're not going to experience contact. So uh, consciousness has to be present and the senses operating. Based on that, contact will happen. We will experience sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, and experiences in the mind, thoughts, emotions, moods. Every single one of those sense impressions has a feeling tone to it. This is the next link. So we have uh, the sense bases, conditions, contact. Now we have contact, conditions, feeling. Every contact has a feeling tone to it. I talked about this last week. We've all talked about it quite a bit. The Just the arising of the very simple aspect of whether experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral conditioned on contact. Based on that feeling tone, craving tends to arise. We tend in a very normal way, as I talked about last week, if something is pleasant, to like it and want it. Something's unpleasant, to not like it, to want to push it away. Things are neutral. Sometimes we just don't even notice them. So in a very natural way, almost in a a habitual way. When feeling arises, we respond in a habitual way to move towards the pleasant, move away from the unpleasant. 
We want the pleasant, we don't want the unpleasant. This is craving. This is craving at work. Usually when that craving begins, we automatically begin to act on it. It's almost hard not to once that craving is set in motion, unless we're mindful. When we're mindful, we can explore craving. We can look at the feeling of wanting, feel that like magnetic pull towards some experience. We can observe it. Usually, in much of our life, and certainly before we began practicing, that feeling of wanting would pretty normally lead to clinging, taking action to get the thing, essentially to follow through on the craving. Bhikkhu Bodhi gives a beautiful analogy to kind of show the the, the gradation between cling, craving and clinging. He says that um, craving is like a thief in a house who is reaching out to take something. And clinging is when the thief has picked it up. So it's that kind of gradation. Once an object is clung to, once we've kind of got it in our possession in some way, shape, or form. Um, the next link is clinging conditions becoming. The most clear description of what becoming is, um, I heard from Tanisaro Bhikkhu, and he talks about becoming being the arising of Intentions and actions, well, intentions and actions kind of rally in the service of that clinging. So the clinging has happened, and once the object is clung to, our intentions, our motivations begin to congeal around how to serve that clinging. How do I keep this thing? How do I... um, um, control this thing? How do I produce this thing? How do I maintain this thing? So there are a whole bunch of intentions that arise around that clinging. This is becoming. We like becoming. Becoming actually feels really good. It's like that moment when you have the sense of, oh yeah, I'm in charge. I can do this. I can accomplish this. I can figure this out. I know how to make myself happy. That's becoming. Following on from becoming is birth, which is actually taking the identity of really solidifying, a kind of a solidification of that identity. I look at becoming and birth as becoming is like the intention towards an identity. And the birth is the identity. So one, following on from birth, the Buddha actually says, following on from that point, you know, suffering's inevitable. We've taken birth and inevitably, either the thing that, that I am trying to control or fix or... Um, hold on to, either that is going to disintegrate 
and, and go away, or there's something going to happen to, um, so, so either the thing will disintegrate, or if it's something along the lines of um, taking birth into an identity of I'm the one who is always right, well, something will come along to prove, of course, that we're not always right, and our identity crumbles. So the identity may crumble, actual possession or ownership of something, it may be, it may be taken away from us. So once we moved into birth, the Buddha says, suffering will be inevitable. One thing I just want to kind of go back and touch into, back around becoming, being pleasant, that the pleasantness of becoming is one way in which the cycle reinforces itself. This cycle, sometimes this chain of dependent origination is called the wheel of becoming. And you know, that the pleasantness of becoming has a potency to it for us. It's, um, you know, if we look at the, 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 the links of the chain, you know, starting from feeling, you know, something, something has, we've, we've felt something and wanted to get something, and that moves us into craving. And craving, craving, when we think about the, the craving or feel into the craving, we see actually that craving is itself an unpleasant experience. Often that unpleasantness of craving is masked because we're focused outward on the thing and imagining in our minds how great it's going to be when we get it. And so we're not really noticing the suffering, the the unpleasant quality of the wanting itself. Wanting has automatically, when we want something, there's a sense of lack. Something feels off. So wanting is unpleasant. When we move to becoming and we have that sense of being in control, partly there's the sense of the appreciation of, I've got that thing now. So, you know, the wanting uh, has produced the result that we've gotten what we wanted. And so we get a little bit of a hit of that pleasantness, that we've gotten what we wanted. And not only that, we've got the, uh, the hit of the pleasantness of becoming, which I think largely has to do with the fact that it feels like we have control over wanting. That we can affect and accomplish, get what we want. So a large part of the um, happiness that arises when we get what we want is the fact that the suffering goes away. And this is, I think, a piece of why becoming feels good to us. So as we're going along in this cycle, following through in this cycle, you know, we, we take birth, we suffer over the loss of something or the loss of an identity, and we think back, well, what was the last time I felt really good? Well, it's when I had that control. That's when I felt really good. And so we, it kind of propels us back through this cycle. So to some extent, I think the pleasantness of becoming is one of the mm, propulsions through this cycle. So I want to give an example of this part of the chain um, just to talk about 
kind of how this works in our experience through an example. So I'd like to do this through a kind of a, 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 a more complicated example in a way. It's about a state of being rather than the simplicity of um, you know, just something pleasant that we like and want to hold on to. I would like to explore how this works in our, in, the, in largely in many of the ways we suffer, have to do with identities that we have. The sense of, for instance, wanting to be a good yogi. You know, we, we um, have this sense of that's what happens in our mind. What happens in our mind? We maybe have an idea that comes into our mind. Perhaps it's born, this wanting to be a good yogi is born by thinking about describing some insight to a teacher or something like that. This contact with this idea. So this idea arises, a thought arises in the mind about describing some insight to a teacher. And in that fantasy, in that idea, that's a pleasant fantasy perhaps. You know, you're getting some kind of a affirmation from the teacher in the fantasy. So there's, there's pleasure in that fantasy. The mind has created this fantasy and is delighting in the fantasy. Then there's the desire, because of that pleasant feeling, there's a desire to have that fantasy become a reality. We, so that's the wanting, that's the craving then the clinging is kind of about a fixed attitude that being a good yogi is actually an important thing. So we've created this idea, oh, I want to be a good yogi. So again, that movement from, from craving to clinging kind of is a gradation. So I want to be a good yogi, and that's really important. So that's the craving and clinging pieces of it. And then... The becoming is all of the intentions that arrive to try to put that clinging into effect. So you may have some ideas, you know, some intentions around um, how do I need to behave to be a good yogi? What does it mean? How do I need to pay attention? And so the, the mind kind of gathers itself around what it thinks would be the intentions, the actions to create that into a reality. So perhaps, you know, sitting long hours in the hall or moving really slowly, whatever it is that you've got thinking about what it might be to be a good yogi. So for simplicity, just assume that for at least a few moments, you've gotten the sense of you are a good yogi. So birth. There's a feeling, a distinct feeling of, yes, I'm a good yogi. I'm familiar with this as well as the opposite, which I'm getting ready to describe. The sense for just a few moments, ah, I can do this. I am a good yogi. I know how to practice. And so there's that birth. There's a taking birth into this is what I am. So in that birth, I think there tends to be an augmentation of the distinction between self and other. 
If I'm a good yogi, it often means there's some kind of comparison going on. It, it, it probably means I'm a better yogi than somebody else. So there's that augmentation of self-other that happens in that process of birth, that taking birth into an identity. The aging and death of this could happen in so many ways. <laughs> uh, in my own experience, uh, often the aging and death of uh, the sense of a good yogi, it was kind of a crash and burn. You know, there would be uh, there would be something that would prove that well, either somebody else was a better yogi than I was, or that I would suddenly sit down in my mind. You know, I, I didn't have control over my mind. I couldn't just choose to say stay with the breath and have it stay with the breath. Sometimes these uh, these identities get born when conditions come together. And, you know, we sit down and suddenly, whoo, the breath is right there and the, it's, there's an ease with it and it's pretty easy to stay stable with the breath. All of this is conditions coming together to make this happen. And then we take ownership of it. Oh, I did that. I'm making that happen. And then we take birth into that identity and then two, three sitting laters, we discover, I can't do that. Actually, I can't, control the, I can't control the mind at all. It's all over the place. And in a way, what happens in that moment is that we take birth into, I'm a bad yogi. The, uh, the ending of one identity, the arising of another one. So suffering happens here. Suffering, the actual crash and burn of the good yogi is suffering. A sense, too, sometimes we can have a sense of um, a fear that can arise around identities. It's like somehow needing to continually prove that we're a good yogi. And just continually pushing ourselves harder and harder and suffering in that. Suffering both from the fear of what happens if I can't keep this up. I remember sitting down on on some occasions and... um, the mind would be just seeing things changing so rapidly. And then I'd sit down the next sitting, and it's like, I can't do that. Oh, I, how do I do that? I, and I was, I, a lot of fear came up because I couldn't figure out how to do what the mind had been doing before. So we uh, suffer around these identities. This is this process, this uh, how identities lead us into suffering. So that gives you a little bit of of a flavor for some of the basic processes at work in dependent origination. Now I want to go back and revisit, or not revisit, but come back to the early links in the chain, the ones that I haven't talked about yet. So first, this uh, chain, as I said earlier, describes a cyclic pattern. And so the arising of, you know, Suffering conditions the arising of ignorance. The Buddha said that suffering will condition or lead to bewilderment or search. Very often it leads to confusion, bewilderment. Why me? Why is this happening to me? How do I fix this? How do I change this? So suffering 
when not understood leads to ignorance, a perpetuation of this cycle. And in fact, ignorance, the main definition of ignorance is that it is understood as not understanding suffering. The Buddha's definition of ignorance in this context, it's not about not understanding some random set of facts. It's about not understanding suffering. He says, not knowing about suffering, not knowing about the origin of suffering, not knowing about the cessation of suffering, not knowing about the way leading to the cessation of suffering. This is called ignorance. So the basic condition for suffering to lead to ignorance is for suffering to be not understood. This is the usual way that so much of our lives unfold. In ignorance, we think we know what will lead to happiness. We think that getting what we want will lead to happiness. And this is a form of delusion, this belief that, yes, if I just get what I want, then I'll be happy. Well, we see how long that lasts, right? Well, it maybe lasts for a few moments, a feeling of happiness. And when that dissipates, it's like, well, where's the next one? How can I get the next one? So acting on ignorance, not understanding suffering, and acting on the ignorance further deepens this cycle of suffering. If suffering is met with wisdom, with mindfulness and wisdom, it begins to lead in another direction. And this is the first noble truth. The Buddha suggested, understand suffering. So the first noble truth is essentially the practice that supports one way to get out of this cycle of suffering. Understand it. Not intellectually, but how is it created? What is the process of suffering? We're doing this. This is what we're encouraging you to do. You observe in your experience the arising of anger. You feel it in the body. You see how it shifts and changes. You notice there are thoughts. Perhaps you can let the thoughts go and just stay with the experience. And notice that the experience dissipates. We see how thoughts condition our body, how our body conditions thoughts. We see this back and forth process. In all of the work that we're doing here, we are exploring this. So with ignorance as a condition, the next link is mental formations. With ignorance as a condition, mental formations come to be. So based on ignorant patterns in our mind, based on not understanding suffering, we make decisions, we uh, choose things, we decide things based on this misinformed idea that getting what we want will make us happy. So out of ignorance... We act in a very short-sighted way. 
We act to just, you know, our minds are pretty short-sighted about happiness. You know, it's like, yeah, just the next thing. Yeah, that, that, that next thing. If I can get that, that'll make me happy. And then when we see that 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 happiness is kind of short-lived, it's like, well, what's the next thing? What's the next thing I can get? And we may not actually believe that having what I want will be ultimate happiness, but we do believe that we should be able to chain together a whole bunch of those moments and have no periods of not having what we want in there at all. And we think that would be happiness. So there's a way in which we, our whole habits and patterns and choices are coming out of this misunderstanding. So out of ignorance, our... Um, we usually take the most obvious choice to get what we want, get rid of what we don't want. And habits and patterns form around this. These habits and patterns are mental formations conditioned on ignorance. We think we're acting to alleviate or end our dissatisfaction by getting what we want, but we're actually cementing, re-cementing this process of wanting, getting, having, identifying, crash and burn. When was the last time I was happy? When I had what I want. Let me find something to want. And we go through again. So this is, these are the mental formations as, uh, conditioned on ignorance. The mental formations to choose to act based on this diluted understanding about happiness, of how happiness comes to be. The next link, with mental formation as a condition, consciousness comes to be. So based on our views, our beliefs about where happiness comes to be, our mind picks certain things out of the environment and doesn't pick other things out of the environment. This is consciousness arises um, based on our proclivities, our mental proclivities. So we've talked about this in terms of filters, for instance. So if anger is arising, for instance, we may, seeing through that filter of anger, pick out of the environment things that confirm why I should be angry. So we we selectively, it's not we doing it, it's it's not intentional in a way, it's the process. It's the process of our mind. There's that filter of anger, and the, the filter itself filters certain things in and not other things. So we see certain things, we hear certain things, we don't see, we don't hear other things. This is a very powerful process in our minds, this filtering mechanism, how this works in our mind. It seems pretty potent and deeply embedded It is possible to see through it, but I'd like to tell you a story about just how deeply embedded it is, because it's quite amazing. Um, Some of you may have heard about this study. Uh, It's on a factor of mind called um, uh, selective attention, I think is what it's called, something like that. 
it's in psychology, it's called selective attention. And they were researching selective attention, how the mind chooses to pay attention to things and not pay attention to other things. And so they, in this study, they gave a group of people a task, a pretty simple task. Watch this video and count the number of times a basketball passes between people in a white shirt. So you watch this video, people are passing a basketball around and you're counting the number of times people are passing the basketball. Simple agenda. People did it. By and large, people could answer the question. This is how many times the basketball passed between people in the white shirt. A few people in, um, afterwards would say something like, was there like a gorilla in that video? And there indeed had been a guy in a gorilla suit that walked through the middle of the basketball game and actually stood there, you know, really obviously stood there, and then walked off. And the vast majority of people did not see the gorilla. Now, that's, that's one thing, right? The fact that, wow, that agenda. So there was an agenda in the mind, do this task. That agenda kind of collapsed down the awareness such that the gorilla was not seen. That's one thing to recognize, okay, didn't see that. But the scary part The scary part about the way this works is that when people were shown the uh, video, most of them said, that has to be a different video. I would have seen the gorilla. The scary part is that we believe our senses to be an accurate, like camera-like recording of experience. And it is just not that way. Consciousness is influenced by mental formations. In this case, the mental formation of an agenda. This happens all the time. We really cannot say that we are seeing everything. Consciousness is present in some some experiences, not in others. Mental formations condition consciousness. With consciousness as a condition, mental and physical processes come to be. This is mentality, materiality. So this is basically based on the state of our consciousness, the state of our mind. This influences the other processes of our mind and body. Essentially, mentality, materiality, uh, a simple definition of mentality, materiality, if we think about the five aggregates that Guy talked about the other night, um, consciousness is one of the five aggregates, and here we have consciousness conditioning mentality, materiality. And mentality, materiality is understood to be the other four of the aggregates. That's one way of understanding mentality, materiality. Mind and body processes. So consciousness conditions, the state of our consciousness conditions the mind and body processes. So having the 
mental formations in, influence our consciousness. You know, seeing the gorilla and not seeing the gorilla, it informs the other mind and body processes. So, for instance, if anger is present in the mind, influencing how we perceive and feel experience, experience may tend to be unpleasant. We uh, may tend to perceive things that confirm the uh, anger, confirm our rightness in a situation. We may, our body may be impacted. There may be an un, uh, a kind of a contracted expression on our face or tightness, tension inside the body as a result of this anger. So here we are back at the place where we began with mentality, materiality, and mentality, materiality influencing our sense bases. Or based on mentality, materiality, there are sense bases. So we're back where we began with eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind, taking in experience. And yet what we see now, coming back through it in this cycle, perhaps when we started, oh, there's an eye, there's sight. Oh, it's pleasant, it's unpleasant, it's neutral. When we started, perhaps, it sounded, you know, just like, well, of course we're taking things in and... But now you see that coming back to this place, we are not taking things in in a neutral way. They're already coming in with a spin. We may not even be seeing certain things. Agendas may be pulling certain things out of the environment, not other things out of the environment. The whole process tends to reinforce our attitudes, our beliefs, our views, because our filters will tend to confirm our views. And so this cycle reinforces itself. So that sounds perhaps kind of hopeless. (laughs) But fortunately, fortunately, it's not hopeless. Um, And that because this chain does describe conditionality rather than determinism, it's possible that with changed conditions, the cycle can be broken. The main conditions, the main supports for altering the habitual kind of way this cycle unfolds, mindfulness, wisdom, concentration, energy. There's a beautiful, um, this is one of my favorite teachings around dependent origination. It's found in the Majjhima Nikaya in a sutta called Right View. And uh, in this sutta, the Buddha points to the possibility that wherever we 
wherever mindfulness and wisdom come into being, right there, we can have freedom. For every single link of the chain of dependent origination, he says, and just here's one of them, so I'll do it, I'll read it for clinging. When one has understood clinging, the origin of clinging, the cessation of clinging, and the way leading to the cessation of clinging, one here and now makes an end of suffering. Now you may notice that pattern is familiar. It's repeated. When one has understood feeling, the origin of feeling, the cessation of feeling, and the way leading to the cessation of feeling, one here and now makes an end to suffering. When one understands ignorance, the origin of ignorance, etc. So that pattern is repeated for every single link in this chain. No matter where you are, no matter where you wake up, bringing the practice of mindfulness to bear on whatever it is you wake up to, the possibility of freedom is right there. It's often, uh, it's often taught, and there's definitely some weak links in this chain. It's often, you know, people often say, well, I have to break the chain of dependent origination at feeling. I have to see the feeling and then not have it lead to craving. But this teaching points to wherever you wake up. If you wake up in the midst of rage, that's a mental formation. And the Buddha says, you can understand the origin of mental formation. Understand the mental formation, the origin of mental formation, the cessation of mental formation, the path leading to cessation of mental formation, and here and now make an end to suffering. This framing essentially the framing of using the understanding of the Four Noble Truths, the the framing of the Four Noble Truths with each link of the chain. What I said earlier, that the Four Noble Truths is basically what is the opposite of ignorance. And so to me, what this sutta is saying is that essentially it is ignorance that we are working with in this chain. Ignorance is where we can get some traction. We get some traction by bringing mindfulness and wisdom, bringing mindfulness to our experience. Mindfulness and the understanding that happiness doesn't come from getting what I want. Happiness comes from letting go that the letting go is where happiness can be found. That understanding begins to undermine the ignorance present in any moment of experience. It doesn't matter where you wake up. Mindfulness, wisdom can free us in this very moment. Now we may just feel it 
not necessarily as full freedom in that moment, but we may feel it as a shift, a sense of a little bit of letting go, a little bit of, um, oh, it's just anger arising, as opposed to, wow, I'm really angry. Oh, it's just anger. That shift that allows us to be more at ease with experience. That may be how wisdom is being experienced in the moment. That is undermining ignorance in that moment. So anywhere that we wake up, any experience we wake up to can be the place of freedom. This gives me a lot of inspiration, a lot of confidence, of faith, of joy, actually, that I think um, at certain points in my practice, you know, I had this idea okay, this is my self-hatred retreat. I guess I get to look at self-hatred. And at some point, when the self-hatred is done, then I'll get to work with insight. You know, So that kind of belief operating. But being willing to meet the pattern of self-hatred, being willing to watch it in just this very way. Self-hatred is arising. And in fact, using the links of contact and feeling. I don't know if Joseph has mentioned this in the hall yet. Um, In this exploration of self-hatred, I had just heard one evening, I had been working with self-hatred for weeks on this particular retreat. And one evening, Joseph did a Q&A, and he said, if something's particularly sticky, try meeting it with a double note. Contact when the experience hits, and then the feeling tone. And so this is highlighting those first two link, those two links, contact and feeling. So the contact of the experience of self-hatred arising. So I was just noticing, okay, here's self-hatred. The movement of self-hatred, the, the, the movement of thought, of thought towards you're no good, you're, you're a failure, being oh, contact, and then noticing the unpleasantness. Contact, unpleasant, contact, unpleasant. And in a moment, in a split second, seeing that arising of self-hatred is just an arising at a very fundamental level, seeing it just as some pattern arising in the mind. It's like watching some tree grow. There's the tree of self-hatred. Just seeing it in a completely impersonal way, in a split second, the pattern fell apart. And replacing that sense of self-hatred was bliss. Then the next moment was something along the lines of, Never again will I feel self-hatred. <laughs> and the next moment was a little more wisdom. It's like, no, <laughs> this is just this moment. And in, the, in that moment, there was just this kind of balance or equanimity of, it's like this right now. That, um, that particular recognition into self-hatred actually wasn't very potent in my life, 
in that it seemed to have the power to really cut through the delusion of that pattern. That that pattern was um, seen for being just a a self-creation. The pattern of self-hatred was seen as a, a, um, a fake. And essentially my understanding is that it kind of cut the belief in that pattern. So right in the midst of being willing to be present for self-hatred, actually a very deep insight arose. Anything, anytime, anywhere, it's possible. If you're having a dukkha retreat, wisdom can arise in the midst of dukkha, freedom in the midst of dukkha. It's not necessary to have it all end. That dukkha doesn't have to all go away before freedom, before the sense of understanding arises. Right in the midst of your experience, whatever's happening, meet it. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.